This is Undisciplined, academic by nature, undisciplined in practice. I am Dr. Karee Banton, Director of African and African American Studies and Professor of History at the University of Arkansas. Now let's get into it. Say what? Say what? So, um, Matthew, when I usually think about uh, the 19... 20s, 1930s, as a historian, how it's structured in my syllabus, Mm -hmm. that period of time is usually spent talking about the Great Migration. Yeah. And then the Harlem Renaissance. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm sure you know, you know, probably heard about the Great Migration. Yeah, I'm a Midwesterner. So oh, so the Great Migration is something I'm I'm fairly familiar with. Yeah. Yeah. It's, you know, that massive internal movement of black people from the South into what we now see as urban centers in the North. Right. All over the country. Um, over six million African Americans from the rural South went into Cities in the North and the Midwest and the West from around 1915 to around 1970. And, of course, this happened in various phases. By 1919, about a million African Americans had left the South, traveling by, of course, (laughs) anything they could get. Bus, train, you know, horse-drawn carts. (laughs) And so between 1910 and 1920, the black population of major northern cities, so name a city— Detroit. Detroit had grown by 611%. Wow. Yeah. Chicago. Yeah. Oh. My home state. (laughs) Yes. Yes. 148%. Philadelphia, 500%. New York City, 66%. Wow. Right? And this was the first wave, right? So the first wave of the Great Migration between 1910 and 1940 um, Chicago, your home state, mm-hmm. um, or the city of your home state, its black population more than doubled. And so, you know, when people talk about, what about Chicago? <laughs> <laughs> you, know, like, you know, I think about the Great Migration. Yeah. And so when I think about this conversation today, too, that's what it kind of prompted me to think about. So obviously they're going north for a whole bunch of reasons, probably the biggest of which is the kind of violence that was existing in the South. Right. Post-Reconstruction, segregation, Jim Crow, new machinery on farms, World War One. the industrialized North is also welcoming um, workers because of the shortage of industrial laborers. And um, the war had also put a steady end to the tide of European migrants. And so you'll see... Um, lots of black newspaper, the Chicago Defender, for instance, mm-hmm. would be publishing advertisements touting, you know, opportunities available in the North and the West. Um, first person accounts of, you know, the success, right? the riches that had been acquired by black people who had moved to these areas. Of course, we had our leaders at the time with their various agendas, you know, during this time, W.E.B. Du Bois at mm-hmm. the turn of the century had published The Souls of Black Folks, had the famous debate with Booker T. Washington. In the mix also was Marcus Garvey and his racial uplift program, right? right? So there's this political agenda for African-Americans who are being inspired by the philosophy and, and work of these different leaders. And the NAACP, all these organizations, NAACP, Urban League, the UNIA, are coming together to kind of 
create this different idea or a different vision for the future of black people to kind of create a, I don't know if propaganda is the right word here, right? Given that they're trying to rejuvenate this idea of the coon that had been so popularized by Mm. minstrel shows and all of that kind of, you know, stuff. And so Du Bois and, you know, various other leaders are using art, Right. Right. They're using a whole bunch of different um, mediums, music, painting, poetry, dance, you know, jazz music emerges during this period of time that we would come to see as the period of the new Negro. The Harlem Renaissance, 750,000 African-Americans who had moved north, 175 had moved to Harlem, Mm. to New York. And we know how big that area is. Yeah. Have you been to Harlem? I haven't been to Harlem, no. Oh, my God, Matthew. Seriously. <laughs> well, that we'll have to take a road trip for I the know, podcast. I know. Let's take it on the road. So <laughs> Harlem, of course, you know, covers that three square miles. And so it became the largest concentration of black people in the world. Mm. Right? So you can imagine this concentration of black people centered in Harlem district. This is going to be the birth of the new Negro movement that's going to have a major influence across the United States, and so on. So when I think about that 1920s and 30s period, that's all I'm thinking about. I'm thinking about the art of Langston Hughes, Mm -hmm. right? Jacob Lawrence, Mm -hmm. right? Um, And his Great Migration series. The responses by Oscar Michaud to D.W. Griffin's The Birth of a Nation, right? right? I'm thinking about Claude McKay, If We Must Die. (laughs) These are the things that I'm thinking about. I'm not thinking about basketball. (laughs) (laughs) You know, so... I am pleasantly surprised, you know, yeah. to, to have discovered this period where African-Americans are having this kind of success in basketball, especially as it relates to race. And, and thinking about how people nowadays associate African-Americans' dominance in basketball with their race. Mm-hmm. It's like they're this bi- these big brutes mm-hmm. that have been bred to kind of dominate the sports. But in the 1930s, Jewish teams <laughs> right. were the teams that dominated American basketball. The sons of immigrants, I often show race the par for an illusion. They talk about that the sons of immigrants, they, those were the dreams. They mm-hmm. had the hoop dreams back in the day. Mm-hmm. It wasn't urban kids who were looking at these current basketball stars, right? And this, you know, the reason that it, it, they were so good at basketball People used to attribute it to the supposedly artful Dodger characteristics of do- Jewish culture, mm. right? You know, they assumed that's what made them so good at the sport, right? Um, but, you know, hadn't considered the strong cultural aspects of, you know, what sports individual chose to play has to do with, you know, other things. So if we think about that 1930 Jewish team and, you know, jump to 1992, mm-hmm. what happens in 92? MJ and the Dream Team, yes. right, in the Olympics. Right. The Dream Team is, is it all black except for... Uh, like John Stockton. John Stockton <laughs> and no, Larry Bird. And Larry Bird, Larry Bird yeah, was yeah. in there too. That's true, that's true. Yeah. So after 1992, 20% of NBA starters would be foreign born. To, you mm. know, the Manu Ginobili, mm-hmm. you know, all of these European players. And now, you know, I was just talking with a friend the other day. I'm pleasantly surprised of all the African names. Yeah. All the African names that Joel are Joel Embiid. Exactly. Yeah. Right. All the African players. What's uh, um, what is his name? Toto. 
the really tall guy. Oh, Taco Fall? Taco Fall, yes, yeah. yes. All of these African players who are now dominating basketball. Yeah. You know, and I mean, like, maybe first-generation immigrants right. of Africans. And so it's very fascinating to me in a sport that's so synonymous with Jordan, mm-hmm. right, um, where people associate him and his shoes to basketball, that there is this deeper history of African-American presence in basketball that we can learn about. So it's for that reason that today we're excited to welcome our guest, uh, Mr. Claude Johnson. Uh, Johnson was born in Vienna, Austria. I've been to Vienna, Austria. I'm happy to report, Mr. Johnson. Um, His father is African-American from the south side of Chicago, and his mother was German, and they moved to the U.S. when he was six. And during a 20-year career in corporate America, Claude held management and executive positions at places like IBM, American Express, NBA Properties, Nike, and Fat Farm. And he is the founder of the Black Fives Foundation, a 501c3 public charity whose mission is to research, preserve, showcase, and teach the pre-NBA history of African-American basketball while honoring its pioneers and their descendants. He is the author of The Black Fives, the epic story of basketball's forgotten era, and his work has been featured by numerous media outlets, including The New York Times, The Illustrious Wall Street Journal, the illustrious Sports Illustrated, ESPN, NBA TV, and of course, the illustrious Undisciplined <laughs> <laughs> podcast as of now. Mr. Johnson, please welcome to Undiscipline. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. I, I appreciate your intro and the history. I was listening very closely. And, uh, you know, it's, a, it's an honor and a, a privilege to be on your show. Really appreciate it. Wonderful. Do you want to start out by telling us some history of your life and a little about your childhood, how this led up to this you know, current moment? You know, interesting. I was looking, I mean, I used to live in Africa at one point, in the Congo, oh. back when it was called Republique du Congo. Ah. And uh, I was in Leopoldville, which is now called Kinshasa. Yeah. And um, my dad was, was there uh, as a professor at a local college. Um, oh, and we, we moved, you know, when I was six to the United States. And when I first got here, because my mother was German and my father was African-American, you know, they both spoke their own language. So I became bilingual. Mm-hmm. But I just didn't know all the words. And so I just remember when we first got to our street and we were unpacking and getting out of the moving van and got our bikes and things. And as we got to know some of the neighbors, I wasn't really that confident speaking. And so I would just sit back and listen. And then um, through that, over the years, you know, my dad from the South Side, from Bronzeville, would take us to Chicago. And we, I got to meet, you know, my grandparents and, um, or my grandmother, because my, my grandfather had passed by then, um, and learn their stories. And some of their stories in- included that they were sharecroppers in the South. They were from northern Louisiana near the Arkansas border. That's hmm. why I was making some of those comments before we started. Oh. And, and how they migrated to Chicago. And, you know, my grandfather, was he never learned how to read or write, but he became uh, a Pullman porter. And, oh. um, yeah, so, so, that, so that whole process of going from a person who, who never learned how to read or write to then have a son who eventually became a college professor and then all of his children 
my siblings, the five of us, we all have our college degrees. You know, that's a process and it's a trajectory. But I always used to say to myself, you know, how come nobody knows these stories about my grandmother and her siblings and the life that they had and that they left behind in the, in the South? And I always felt like these are voices that are not being heard. There's um, maybe a sense of giving voice to the voiceless because who's speaking for them? And then as I began to learn about these pioneers and that that was a a whole other step in uh, the evolution, you know, the trajectory, I I felt an affinity between them and my grandparents and uh, and their trajectory to just say, well, who's talking for these people? Hmm. Why are they forgotten? How come they're buried, you know, in an unmarked grave, not only them, but their their history. Uh, And so that's what this book is. It's, you know, a labor of love. And uh, I tried to put a sense of urgency in there about why and and what this history was and how it connected to all the other histories. It's like being on a black basketball train and looking out the window at the scenery, which is black history. Yeah. So what drew you to pre-NBA history of African-American basketball? Well, when I, when I was working at the NBA in 1996, uh, I was in their uh, international division and they were celebrating what they called their 50th anniversary that year. And they published a book called the NBA Encyclopedia of Basketball. It's an 800-page book, but it only had three pages in it devoted to black basketball teams that played before the NBA. And so then I thought, well... I knew there were more teams because I had read Arthur Ashe's book called The Hard Road to Glory. He's the the uh, tennis legend, yeah. uh, pioneer um, in that sport. And he wrote a book about the history of blacks in, in sports. And in the basketball section, he talked about these different teams like the Smart Set Athletic Club of Brooklyn. Uh, and I was living in Brooklyn at the time. So I became enthralled by that whole history and began looking into it further and no one knew anything about it not the nba um, the hall of fame uh, different historical societies and i just realized that one has to go to the library to the microfilm and learn it themselves so i learned how to do research i didn't even know what that was at the time it was all um you know manual like uh, reels of microfilm that you had to turn by hand uh, so it's, it's still that. Yeah, but I found out <laughs> in some places it's still that way, right? But, yeah. but now a lot now there's a lot digitized, you know. But back then, you know, I discovered that there were dozens and dozens of African American basketball teams that mm. emerged and flourished from the turn of the century, like around 1900, 1905, 1904, all the way through the racial integration of the NBA. And so I started looking at all those teams and trying to study them and write down the history and the chronology. And that's where this this quest began for me. What did you study in college? Well, in college, I I, I studied engineering. I have an engineering (laughs) degree and I I even I even have a master's in engineering. Oh, wow. I always say, you know, that that's a it's really problem solving. You know, at the end of the day, you you're you're at point A and you you want to get to point B how do you do it and so that's where the the process of engineering comes in Korea. I don't I don't know if you have to be a historian or a sociologist um to have an interest in it 
Oh, no, for sure. I'm always impressed by people who are like, you know, I am so into history, especially when it's from disciplines that that are not in the humanities that, you know, um, people, I, I, whenever people learn that I'm a historian, they told me, it's like, oh, man, I used to love history <laughs> and I didn't get a chance to take enough courses or, you know, didn't have the opportunity. So Right. Claude, if anything, you're really leaning into this idea of the undisciplined podcast exactly. because it's taking those <laughs> ideas of, of using the skills that you have from your engineering degree to really utilize towards history. And, and let, me, let me tell you a, a little story with that. So I first started blogging about this back when blogs, you know, you thought <laughs> somehow you could get some visibility. And it, and it was, it actually worked. It helped me to find my voice and, you know, be able to express myself. And then for a little while, whenever anybody would talk with me or interview me or have me on the show, it would say amateur historian Claude Johnson. <laughs> and I, at one point I was like, well, wait a second. But then I realized unless you correct them and call yourself historian, then you'll always be an amateur or a hobby historian. And so at a certain point, I changed my own narrative and said, no, I'm, I'm a historian. Like, there's no such thing as amateur. I mean, I guess if you're getting paid for it, then you're a professional, but finally. But, but no one said you have to have a degree. So once you say and believe that you're a historian and you start to understand that craft and know how it works and where the, what to do, then why not? And so ever since then, I've been a historian. <laughs> well, let's dive into some of that history then. So in 1891, basketball is invented. How quickly was the game picked up in black communities? Well, there were a number of you know isolated instances of black players at colleges within 10 years or so, but it's not until 1904. You know, th- there's a, a man named Edwin Bancroft Henderson who's credited with being the first to widely introduce the game to African-Americans on a large-scale organized basis, and that was in 1904. He was a a black gym teacher in Washington, D.C., which had a segregated public school system at the time, and he took a summer course in Cambridge, Massachusetts, and came back and had learned this new sport called basketball. He was very excited about it because he felt that his students back in D.C. would be excited, and uh, he he was wrong at first because at first, they thought it was a sissy sport, according to his own personal history that he wrote, because back then, football was the sport. But later, they started to realize, okay, I, we get what this is. It's a, the game was evolving, and they were learning how to play. And once they figured that out, and the game started to spread uh, to New York and to you know, other cities where, where it took off, and you know, before long, literally within the next two or three years, there were already dozens of teams in uh, especially the New York area, but up and down the East Coast, Pittsburgh, and then Chicago as well, Philadelphia, Baltimore. It began to spread and it just kept going. It's very uh, interesting to me that it was considered a sissy sports. I mean, you know, you think about it now and, you know, athletes, um, black male athletes are considered like, you know, the heartthrob, they're the epitome of virility and um, masculinity, (laughs) Um, so to speak, you know. So I wonder if it's just, you know, football and it's, you know, tackling and running into each other and maybe maybe basketball, you know. I, um, Mr. Johnson, I grew up in Jamaica playing netball. I'm not sure if you're familiar Mm. with that. Uh, Yeah, is that like European handball? Is that the same, a different name for it? 
So it's like basketball, but without the backboard, and it's played by women. Oh. Yes. Yeah, so you don't dribble, and there you you don't hit a bank shot. Mm. Yes. You just have to drop it in. Yeah. So you were doing chest passes, you know, overhead passes, things like that. You cannot be taking all these steps that NBA players, you know, be you know doing traveling with the <laughs> ball and doing all that. So you're just passing the ball down the court from one end to the next, and then you shoot in this rim that I think maybe roughly as high as maybe a basketball, but there's no backboard. Um, there to help mm. you with the shot. It's just a rim up there, so you have to be really, you know, targeting that little hole. To she's throw the ball she into. she's low key bragging here. A, a, a little bit, a little yeah. bit. <laughs> well, so you, you I, I can see, I can tell you were a good shot. But what's interesting about Jamaica and the West Indies is that in the early days of black basketball in New York City, the game was controlled by West Indian Islanders. Um, they were the key power brokers in the early days and um, part of it was because they were so intent on keeping the game strictly amateur because of the roots in the west indies especially about cricket which was ah. not considered a sport that you play you know for money you play for camaraderie it's a gentleman's sport you have community <laughs> yes yes exactly yeah. yeah oh my goodness so that that form of genteel pastime activities you know it's quite interesting that and i mean the thing i didn't mention when i was talking about the great migration but i do include it in my class so the reason why you have people like marcus garvey in new york it's because there's also a great migration out of the caribbean into new york city as right. well so claude mckay is also yeah. jamaican right. you have a bunch of other um, caribbean folks who are part of the socialist community in new york and a part of the radical black agenda in New York. So it's very fascinating that it's, it is West Indian and maybe they have that relationship to netball or, you know, as you said, to cricket as well that, you know, make this particularly interesting. Wonderful. <laughs> For them, it was really like a, definitely a community, community oriented aspect. But as the, but as more fans came to games, they, and they were paying a, an admission fee, which was usually 25 cents at the time, uh, you know, they start to realize, well, we're actually accumulating some revenue here. Mm -hmm. And so that, that's how it evolved into a, into semi-professional where you share the gate receipts with the players and the coaches and the people on the team. And then eventually they had full blown professionalism with, you know, guaranteed season long contracts. Uh, and, and so that, then it really took off. Now, you suggest that uh, churches and those kinds of institutions, you know, faith communities, had a major role in bringing together these early players, you know, the early Black Fives. Yeah, so at the beginning, really, what my book tries to do is I, I go, this is where engineering comes in. I take Black basketball and I try to go to the hexadecimal level of breaking down exactly where it began and why and how and you know to the binary like zeros and ones like not just speculating about it but exactly pinpointing the details and in order to do that you first have to understand why the game was invented at all and it was to help specifically young men because it came out of the young men's christian association mm -hmm. um, to keep young men from becoming morally corrupt during winter months because there wasn't enough to do because football had ended and baseball wasn't going to start until the spring. So what do these 
youths do. And authorities who were in uh, what was called physical culture, which was, again, there was no such thing as, as fitness or physical fitness. They just came up with these, like it was a movement that began in the mid to late 1800s where people realized, wow, we have to actually move around and be physically fit because that helps us stay balanced. And that's why the YMCA logo, their motto is mind, body, spirit with the triangle. And tuberculosis was an issue at that time, was it? Tuberculosis and uh, pneumonia. And then because of all this migration to the north, there was a great deal of overcrowding, especially in the poorest communities, which included black communities. And People had sometimes no ventilation, no windows, you know, things like that. And, and so uh, the mortality rate among black people in New York City was 25%, which means one out of four people were going to die from pneumonia and tuberculosis before they realized that it was even you know, caused by a bacteria. They were saying, okay, the best solution is to exercise our lungs. And that's how the first um, all-black athletic clubs were formed with the purpose of just strengthening the health of the community. And then one of the ways that they did that, of course, was through track clubs, but also then suddenly basketball became an emerging interest because you, you're running around, people can participate. You don't have to have a specific special skill at first. You could just get in the game. And this is how it all first began as a community-based, community-building, community-strengthening activity and that's why churches and recreation centers and um, athletic clubs, social clubs became involved because they were all just part of this bigger effort as a community building endeavor. But, but then, you know, that was before suddenly the interest became so high that it went from, you know, 100 fans to 200 fans, and then 1,200 fans, and eventually yeah. within a few years, 5,000, and it just kept going. And so that's when... That's when it evolved at its height, not its peak, but when it really took off was to coincide with the Harlem Renaissance period. The first all-black professional basketball team was formed in 1923 by a West Indian, uh, a guy named Bob Douglas, who was from St. Kitts. And I imagine, uh, you know, thinking about all that, too, these all-black, we have to think about you know, Plessy versus Ferguson and mm -hmm. segregation and how the church being the center of all black organizing activities uh, from, you know, the Amy Church, Richard Allen, who had, you know, developed similar measures to stem the tide of yellow fever in Philadelphia. So, you know, that the church has always played a significant role for a very long time. I guess now, you know, we're not living in segregated communities. That's why people organize online. So it's it's very interesting. Mic check one, two. This is Ryan Versi, KUAF's underwriting director. KUAF now produces eight podcasts with important topics ranging from mental health to cryptocurrency with more than 20,000 downloads a month. You can reach these listeners with information about your business or organization by sponsoring a podcast like Ozarks at Large, Resilient Black Women, Undisciplined, or others. To learn more about sponsoring a podcast on KUAF, email me at ryan at KUAF.com. That's R-Y-A-N at KUAF.com. Claude, one person that you mention a lot when we're 
coming into the early parts of, you know, it's still amateur basketball starting to become a little more professional as a journalist named Lester Walton. What do you think Walton's role was in covering these early games and kind of highlighting uh, the excitement around it? Lester Walton was a, a young journalist who was from St. Louis and he arrived in New York City around the time that there were these these amazing giant vaudeville productions that were taking place that were African-American productions. And he got some money and became famous as a lyricist for some of these shows. But he was also a great writer. And he eventually took over as the, what they called, uh, well, back then basketball was under the category of entertainment. And so they had a stage and entertainment section in the New York Age, which was the most widely read black newspaper at the time. And he was that editor. And so he started writing about basketball in its infancy, starting in Brooklyn. And But back then, the New York Age uh, was part of an, a bigger network of black newspapers that were syndicated. So what he wrote in the New York Age was, was also then printed across the country in other black newspapers like the Indianapolis Freeman. And so then what he was writing, he knew, he had a sense that this was a big deal, even though there were only 100 people at this game. And even though the score was 31 to 1, <laughs> um, you know, he, he would say this was a great struggle for victory, hmm. you know, and, and then people in Indianapolis and everywhere would just lose their minds and say, wow, we got to do that, too. You know, they didn't realize and it didn't matter that the score was 31 to 1. What mattered is the fact that they played this game at all and that it was covered in a newspaper, like that was a, that was progress for the race. And, and so people don't realize you have to start somewhere. And it, the first game wasn't some amazing Hollywood production. If you were to tell me today that a, that a basketball game was 31 to one, I <laughs> don't know that I would be terribly inclined to, to hear the recap on that. Did he have the foresight to see that, you know, this game may be 31 to one, but future games will be stronger and, and future games will be more electric? Or, you know, was it just a genuine, holy cow, they're playing this game? Yeah, it was, it was the latter. I mean, every single made basket, every single pass, probably every single dribble was seen as sensational. <laughs> and so it didn't really matter if it was 31 <laughs> to 1 because the spectators were they weren't as connected to either team. It was more just, we're here to watch, and it's a social event. Ah. And we're also watching this other team play. And so, you know, there were fans from both, for both teams. They, they called them rooters at the time because they rooted for their, you know, whichever team. And then they um, came up with a new innovation right around the time of uh, the rise of the radio and the phonograph when suddenly black music became popular. It was already popular as sheet music, but after the phonograph and radio, people wanted to hear these bands in person because hmm. you couldn't play that one, you couldn't play that orchestra on your on your piano in the parlor. Right. So there was a, a ballroom construction craze, and then you had these ballrooms um, where in some nights they were empty, and enterprising black basketball promoters realized, well, we can bring in an orchestra and we can have a basketball game. So they combined music with the sport mm -hmm. uh, so that there was, there was an orchestra or a band playing before the game, during halftime and after the game, and then it would 
morph into a dance. And so all these early advertisements for the games would say basketball as two words and dance. <laughs> and that's because the dance was always part of it from, from the very beginning in these, in these early encounters. And so the games weren't just, hey, we're going to root for a team. It was also an enormously meaningful social event. That's interesting. My, you know, it's quite hilarious. I, you know, when growing up in the Caribbean, my dad used to say, I guess the reason why basketball hadn't taken root in Jamaica or I guess the wider Caribbean was that the score was too high. <laughs> He's like, put the put the the hoop up higher. Let it be, you know, two to one. <laughs> Let it where we can climb the posts and get the ball in there. <laughs> and I guess, you know, it's because we're used to test cricket and, you know, we're used to soccer, mm-hmm. you know, football, as we call it, where the score is like nil all sometimes. You know, it's like, what? This is 120 to 100. That score is outrageous. <laughs> but I thought cricket had really high scores. Am I, am I wrong? Yes, cricket, because, I mean, you can score sixes and, and fours and things like that. So I, I guess in some ways, you know, um, test cricket is a whole separate animal. You could uh, you could stay at the crease for like a whole half a day and not make <laughs> any runs, you know. <laughs> so yeah, it, it yeah, yeah, it's a it's it's a very fascinating. You you quote a Panamanian immigrant in your book who remembers back the tensions between different members of the diaspora, who says we were all strangers, the black American, the black foreigner. We did not like one another, and the white foreigner liked us less, and the white American hated all of us. What role did basketball um, play in bringing together the diaspora in America? Well, what's what's very interesting, what interested me was also the way that basketball was seen at all by authorities who were, you know, physical fitness and amateur athletic union authorities, because they they also embraced, basketball was embraced by European immigrants as well. Mm-hmm. Especially on the Lower East Side, there were, there were many Jewish immigrants who readily found the game to be valuable in their community too. And so um, the reason why, why these officials liked basketball is because there would be fans from all over the place, from Russia, Slovakia, Italy, and they were all sitting side by side and they saw how if you're playing the game and you're following the rules, there's a certain way you play. They believed that by watching basketball, a new immigrant could learn about American civics, civic orientation and and leadership and how to behave in the court of the land. There are rules, you have to follow them. If you don't follow them, there are penalties. There are, you know, free throws and or you can get ejected or you, if you have enough fouls, you get kicked out of the game. But that wasn't really the case uh, with the amount of resources that were provided for black uh, youth, both men and women, who had to still you know, find whatever way they could to play. And, and so, you know, there was a common ground when eventually when you had these different pockets of African-Americans around New York City they figured out a way to play regardless. They would rent ballrooms, church basements, and eventually they had uh, their, own, uh, their own venues, but it took a while. But the diaspora is interesting because one of the key players in this was this uh, pair of Jewish entrepreneurs in Harlem 
who owned a place called the Manhattan Casino. Uh, that was a large ballroom facility that could house 6,000. And they started making their venue available to these African-American teams. And it became so popular that teams from all over the place, even two away teams would play up in New York City. So Howard might play Hampton in New York City just because hmm. it was the center of the black basketball universe at the time. Can you talk a little bit about what it was like for these black five teams to go and play in predominantly white communities, especially when we think of like the Rust Belt or the Midwest? Uh, they played against these all white teams in a Jim Crow pre-civil rights era. Yeah, well, that's a great question. So you have to ask, well, how could an all-black team in the 1930s during the Great Depression, during Jim Crow, go to an all-white state, an all-white town like Oshkosh, play, defeat their local all-star team, leave safely, and get invited back? <laughs> and again and again, year after year. Well, that's because, first, it was such a success and it, it was considered to be such a novelty. You know, back then they didn't have movies. They might have had a movie theater, but a lot of towns didn't. And so these patrons would come from miles around and they would patronize the local restaurant, bar, saloon, um, merchants, uh, hotels, and, you know, possibly gamble on the, on the game or what have you. And then uh, watch this amazing game where they'd never seen this kind of action before. And so people looked forward to that and then they left. So everybody was a winner, even if they lost the game. And so these African-American teams like the New York Renaissance that was formed in 1923 in Harlem were like a mobile economic stimulus when they <laughs> arrived in town. But when you step back, you realize they had to shake hands and come to some kind of an alliance and a, an agreement of how they were going to split the gate receipts. And uh, this business model was very lucrative. It worked uh, because it helped them, you know, travel and continue to travel and put gas in their car. Eventually they had a, a bus, but it wasn't without difficulty because they also had to, there were some uh, pioneers who, when they were interviewed, these are former Rens players and even their traveling secretary, Eric Illich, would say that, you know, at the beginning, they just constantly had to break the jaws of some of these people, they had to knock them out, their opponents, their white opponents, until they realized they're all right, like we respect them. Hmm. And then after that, they just played, played their asses off, like hard basketball. And that was that. But before that, you, you had to sort of establish yourself first. And um, how they did it uh, was always, you know, was fascinating. But their traveling road manager had to carry a loaded revolver in his pocket when they counted up the gate receipts and, you know, just in case there was anything that was out of out of the ordinary and you needed to uh, make a point. Yeah. And, the you know, the white teams didn't often win. Right. <laughs> I mean, what's what's the incentive if you're if you're an athlete on that other side? You know, are you looking at it from a well, I'm just getting better and this is helping me get better? Like what's what's in it for the white players? <laughs> well, th th that's the thing. Right. So they would almost never win. <laughs> because the New York Renaissance were so good. I mean, they played a schedule of, you know, up to 140 games a year. And over a 25-year period, they won 85% or more of their games. So it meant that they would win maybe 120 games and lose eight over that time span. And what was in it for them was 
again, it was not so much for the team, it was for the town. So as long as they didn't win by too much, because that was the rule, <laughs> is you just you want to you want to win the that game. That was the rule. It was the understanding among uh-huh. the, in the among the team is that let's go in here. Don't embarrass me. We're not going to beat them by what we what we could beat them by fifty points. We have to beat them by an amount where the local newspaper can say, <laughs> "Hey, the lads, the local lads tried their best. They put up a good game, but after all, this these were the colored." world champions Hmm. and so you know now we have a chance to get invited back and so that was an important aspect but one of the things that it led to was the concept of keep away because if you Hmm. already have a 10-point lead now that's where that motion offense developed is constant movement where this seems like there's a lot of action but there's no scoring you know but you're keeping the, the ball away there's a pivot there's everybody's moving so that's how some of these developments happened. Oh, wow. It seems to me, it like given the statement from the Panamanian immigrant, that there's a form of racialization happening there about, you, you mentioned how, you know, they're teaching migrants how to become Americans, right? It's the melting pot and basketball. It seems like you have an argument there. It's playing a significant role in kind of molding immigrants into Americanness, into American, yes. into that crucible of Americanness and playing a role. But it seems like it's also doing important work with racializing as well, right? I imagine those local newspapers talking about the colored boys, you know, coming to town or whatnot, you know, is doing the work of sorting people into group, into the necessary group and you know, as it's so related to health and fitness and all of those kind of maybe this is a period of eugenics as well, right? You know, that basketball is deeply entrenched in that as well. Well, I think people somehow thought in more simple terms because part of it was also that it was a novelty. So you had all Jewish teams, you know, like the South Philadelphia Hebrew Association, and so when they came to town, it was the Hebrews are coming to town. And you had the New York original Celtics, which were, you know, Irish guys. And so there was like, the, the Irish are coming. And then when you had, you know, a team called Olsen's Terrible Swedes, you know, the, the Swedish are coming. You know, Olsen's Terrible Swedes, the mean Swedes, or the, the House of David or what have you. And so part of it was just, we have to signal before we get there you know, what's our branding? What's our label? Like, who are we? Are we Jewish? The branding seemed largely to be ethnicity and and race. Yeah. That's right, because back then, you didn't become better by making another group worse. You, You just were who you were. So the Swedes, the Jews, the Italians, the Irish, Black, it sort of worked up to a point. And even once the Renaissance established respect, they were called the colored champions, but people just largely accepted that they were the best basketball team, period. Hmm. And it wasn't until the, until the uh, Harlem Globetrotters came around that comedy started to get introduced. And then it kind of reverted back to the more, you know, as you pointed out earlier, you know, the minstrelsy aspect that was so funny and hilarious and uh, aren't they funny, you know, but that was not how it started. Um, it started out in, as a very serious endeavor, but it was only the Globetrotters and then after them, a lot of uh, copycat teams that took that same approach. And the owner of the Renaissance never 
adopted that approach. He never liked that, and so he never did that. He, he just kept it straight basketball. So how has the, you know, history of the Black Fives impacted the current landscape of professional basketball? Just to kind of round it out there. Yeah, it's great that you asked that question right in the context of the previous question. Remember, I was mentioning that Olsen's terrible Swedes. <laughs> there was a team, they actually traveled together with an all-Black team called the New York Harlemites who happened to be from St. Louis, <laughs> but they traveled together in the Northwest. And what would happen is they would travel together and play each other in front of crowds mm. because there wasn't necessarily a good enough team in Montana that could stand up to either one of those teams. So they would play, they would travel on the road together and play each other. So that was a, a separate kind of a business model. And then of course they would also play local teams. And this one Harlemites team, was up in Montana in 1937, and they were caught in a blizzard, and their car stalled. But the temperatures that week were minus 40 degrees Fahrenheit, and they had to walk three miles and finally were rescued by a, a sheep herder and brought into their this sheep herder's hut, and eventually they were hospitalized. And they, they all had such frostbite that they had to bandage their hands. But they still showed up for their next game on the schedule and played in bandaged hands mm. and won the game. <laughs> Even though one of the players had to be sent back to St. Louis, he had developed gangrene and eventually died. So um, the local newspapers in Montana said, well, they played, the boys played really well, even though one of their teammates died. <laughs> uh, and what that does is it shows you that the game was popularized in part with the help of African-American teams that went out to places like Montana, but they don't really probably have an idea of what role was played to even make basketball so popular up there in the first place. And when you talk to today's basketball fans or players, you know, it was a whole different time where these individuals were out there risking their lives, not necessarily fighting racism, but just the elements of your car getting stuck in a ditch or, or running out of gas or being stuck in a blizzard and still maintaining your schedule, still playing, just keep going, just keep at it. You know, are you stoppable or are you unstoppable? And, um, you know, that's the legacy and the inspiration that if you're ever looking for a reason to play, you know, like you, you know, you're not in the mood or you don't want to show up for this game. Just think back to the New York Harlemites in Montana and playing with frostbitten bandaged hands and still winning like can you know you got to have some grit to focus on that and and i guess the other point that i would make is all of these teams were making national headlines but yet we don't know about them today so what does that say about any player today that's making national headlines does it does it guarantee that in 50 years or 100 years people will know about you well then you have to think about what's the legacy what's the bigger picture you're using the game or is the game using you? And, you know, that's where we are right now because uh, players are using the game not only for their own well-being and income and or just fitness, but also as a platform um, to elevate their voices about things they care about. 
One of the last things we want to touch on here, Claude, is uh, is this collaboration that the Black Fives has made with Puma. You know, I'm, we're just looking at some of these shoes here. How did that collaboration come together, and and how do we get our hands on a, a pair of these sneakers? <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so we've been trying to be in touch with different footwear companies and other organizations um, because we feel for a long time that merchandise is, a, is its own language. And in trying to teach this history, what better way than to validate it through uh, really cool merchandise that's, that's licensed and that, you know, with a global footwear partnership. And so you know, we were very fortunate and blessed to have been approached by and also received by Puma when we began talking with them. And so we have this multi-year, you know, long-term partnership with them that includes merchandise, footwear and apparel and accessories. But also more than that, you know, they're sponsoring our online museum, which is, you know, displays the artifacts that we have in our archives, which is many, many, you know, hundreds, actually close to a thousand artifacts from this period. And, you know, through them, you know, we're able to give presentations to boys and girls clubs, YMCAs, and along with their retail partners like Foot Locker. And then we also have a, a partnership like that with Lids for headwear. And we, we aim to continue, but m- mainly it's so that people all over the world can learn about this history. And the reason that's important is that people feel intrinsically or instinctively that they want to right a wrong, that somehow this history, there's a, there's a true version of this history that they haven't been told. And by supporting our organization and by supporting this, this movement, really, that it's become, even if it's through the purchase of a T-shirt, um, they feel like they're part of that because we're now in a period, you know, in, in all of our lives in the evolution of mankind, literally, where people want to right wrongs and figure it out and um, see if they can make a difference in this sort of awakening that's happening. And if that's, if that's how you feel after you get one of these items or the book or, you know, participate in any other way, um, I'm, all, I'm all for it, you know. And, but to answer your question, we do have a, an online store, but you can also go to just Google and blackfives.org. Uh, the shop is, you know, shop.blackfives.org. You know, under that same handle, we're on Twitter and Instagram and most of the social media. And, you know, we're glad to have you sign up on our on our email list to get updates and announcements, but it's also educational, you know, at the end of the day and people are tweeting and posting about us from South Africa to Tokyo, you know, Australia and Turkey and Italy and and France and Germany, but also, you know, in LA and New York and New Orleans and Baltimore uh, and Chicago, as well as uh, Washington or Portland or Montana. And so I'm really pleased about that because it means that more and more people are finding out about this history. Mr. Johnson, thank you so very much for coming to Undisciplined. We very much appreciate you, you know, bringing uh, this subject um, to the attention of our audience. And um, we just appreciate you for sharing this with us. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Thank you so much. And uh, appreciate being on the show. Undisciplined is hosted by Dr. Karee Banton and produced by me, Matthew Moore. 
Our show's associate producer is Rachel Bernstein. Thanks so much for listening. If you haven't had a chance yet, make sure to follow or subscribe on your podcast app.